Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 76th episode, I'll be talking to my old friend Rebecca Graves about Stephen King and Dream Logic. Along the way, we discussed the best damn museum in Missouri, eventually seeing the elusive giant hot dog, and how to escape a dream if you're Batman. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. Editor's note, we had yet another day of our wonderful technical problems, so while Becky sounds fantastic, I sound like I'm down a tunnel, while my infant son in the next room can be heard clear as day. Also, birds outside my window and typing of a keyboard. Basically, I'm sorry. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? <laughs> I don't know about all that, but all right. I'm Becky Graves. I'm Giggaloop on Twitter and most of the internet. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to describe myself. It's not like I actually do anything. I just exist on the internet. <laughs> hey, hey, you do stuff. I've seen stuff. I do. I do do stuff, I guess. I don't know. I don't know where anyone would know me from other than being a fan of podcasts, because that's probably where anybody would recognize my name from, I guess. Well, that's how we met each other, because listeners, you know how certain podcasts will have fans that will contribute to stuff and will be the names that are mentioned when, you know, the equivalent of a Drew Davenport on the Bim Bam. Becky, is that for a number of podcasts? Yeah, I have been that a couple of times, I think. I was that for NSFW show and, God, even back to BB Live show, then NSFW show and Night Attack, that whole iteration of things. The Brushwood family of podcasts? Yeah. <laughs> Chainsaw Suit, I was there for that as well. But yeah, that might be where people would recognize my name from. Big name in fandom, that's me. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> and the face of Patricia Harkins Bradley. Oh, that is true. Yeah, that's my mug on the back of that book cover. <laughs> that's the only thing I contributed to that. Book, <laughs> Lucky you. So you didn't write the bit where he had long, strong hands like the wings of a moth. <laughs> no, I will cop to having submitted a story for that, but apparently it was either way too bad or too good to be chosen. I'm going to choose book. the latter because I've read what got in. <laughs> so if it had any sense of like, you know, sentence structure and narrative, I think they're like, no, sorry, that's not what we're looking for. Too classy. Too classy. Maybe the sequel. If you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the Diamond Club. I talked about it on my episode with Mac Weaver. It was a crowdsourced fake romance novel that was all about the banging and... Romance might be strong. I would say <laughs> there you erotica. Go. Yeah. <laughs> Not well, romance. This is the episode with Mac. I described it to someone who had never heard of it before, and I think she went and immediately bought it. It's still for sale at ninety nine cents on, on iBooks. 
And that's actually where I ended up meeting Becky is through the NSFW fandom and then eventually through Twitter. And now Becky and I are part of a number of group chats on Facebook and you know, group DMs on Twitter for things like Adventure Zone. And recently you've gotten back into wrestling, so I'm looking forward to including you into our wild wrestling chat with all of my local wrestling folks. Oh yeah, I can't wait. I'm excited for WrestleMania in a couple weeks. So what was your through line in getting back into wrestling? Because I know that it, w- it was relatively recent, right? Yeah, within, I guess, probably would be right after the Royal Rumble. Just because so many of the people that I talk to online and follow on Twitter are also wrestling fans, whether hardcore or casually. The entire Twitter timeline, the night of the Royal Rumble, was just nonstop wrestling. There was nothing else going on, but everybody that I knew was talking about wrestling. And I was like, okay, maybe I should maybe start watching wrestling again. So I think we watched the Raw the night after Royal Rumble and kind of started to get back into it from there. I tell you what, that Royal Rumble is a good place to jump on because there was so much good that night. The entire card was really strong. You had the Women's Rumble for the first time ever. You know, you had Shinsuke Nakamura winning the Men's Rumble and then Asuka winning the Women's Rumble. And it's just like, yes, one, two, my faves. Yeah, it was a really good time to step on. I've definitely, I'm interested to see more of Shinsuke just because I've heard so many people talk about how much they like him. I was excited to actually see him on Raw a couple weeks ago, wrestle for the first time because I'd never seen him in anything before because we just got back into it. But yeah, he seems like, I like those, I've always liked those, either the big personality type people like, you know, The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin and stuff like that, or the like high flying, really athletic people have been the, the type of wrestlers that I gravitate towards so yeah I was always a sort of technical wrestler guy or a high flyer those were always the ones that would get my attention when I was younger and it's like stuck with me and yeah it's one of those things where when you look at something like actually no before I describe it because everyone's heard me talk about it I'd like to know your (laughs) viewpoint as you know a returning fan I want to hear like how would you describe Shinsuke Nakamura Well, I mean, it's tough because I've only seen him wrestle once so far, but he definitely seems like he's got more of the, you know, like off the top rope, high flyer, really technical moves that he does. But he also brings a lot of that big personality stuff where he's engaging the crowd and doing things to get the crowd pumped up in between moves, too. So it's kind of a combo of both of the things that I enjoy in wrestlers. So I'm excited to see more. Definitely. One thing that I remember when they originally were signing Shinsuke Nakamura from NJPW to WWE, the big thing was, is like, are they going to let him be himself? Because he had already established right. pretty much the same persona in NJPW. Because he started out as like, as a rookie, as they called him the super rookie, because he was one of the young wrestlers who would take on a lot of big wrestlers and usually get it, get creamed, but he was talented enough to do it. And then out came this personality, his King of Strong Style personality, that culminated in him coming out in a, what I could only describe as a Statue of Liberty outfit with a 10-foot cape <laughs> at Wrestle Kingdom 9 to fight Kota Ibushi. It was amazing. Someone, like, people would send each other pictures of it, of him with these, like, you know, 20-inch, like, spikes coming out of his head and his crown and holding a scepter and his <laughs> sparkly cape going back to the entrance ramp. And then you see him fight. And I, I've said it before, I've said it again. It's like there's a swarm of spiders that became a person and decided that it hated you. <laughs> That's a good description. He's constantly moving and like his fingers are never still and his shoulders are moving. and He's pulling these incredibly interesting faces and stuff. And so he's always just a delight to watch. Yeah, yeah. like in the one match that I watched, it seemed like there's no downtime mm. in that match. Even between moves, like he's always doing something to like 
get the audience pumped up or to like transition into the next combination of moves or whatever like he doesn't stop the whole time i thought i really like that and i love it when my friends come back and they're like yeah i'm getting back into wrestling because i start just like queuing up things of being like right i'm gonna send you this i'm gonna send you this i'm gonna send you this ask allison stock for whom i sent the one hour match that is kenny omega versus katsuchika okada and then she decided to watch it in what was lunchtime my time but it was late in the evening her time and I, my phone just started blowing up with twitter notifications all in capitals <laughs> now are they the golden lovers Kenny Omega is one half of the Golden Lovers. Kota Ibushi, who I mentioned Okay, before. yeah. I, I read that whole Twitter thread. Oh, it's so good. About the history of all that stuff. It's like, see, this is the kind of stuff that I, I need in my wrestling. Absolutely. I need continuing storylines. I need to be invested. I think it's something like three years of storylines where it's like, you know, there's Kenny Omega you know, dropping all of his nice guy tendencies and just becoming this like literal Terminator murder machine yeah. to get the gold and then failing. And, like, subsuming more and more of his humanity to become this, like, deadly person, this Final <laughs> Fantasy boss of NJPW, complete with the Albert Wesker sunglasses and the <laughs> Devil Sky, which is essentially, like, you know, Sephiroth theme. <laughs> and, and he even names his finishing move the One Wigan Angel. So, come on, it's gonna happen. Then to have all that fail and have to be rescued by his longtime friend and rival, and then lover. <laughs> and it's also glorious and gay and also Kenny Omega is bisexual IRL and is very very open about being bisexual I know there are a lot of still a lot of taboos about that in Japan and him yeah. kind of just like doggedly hanging onto it and going you know like magazines will ask him stuff like oh who would you take to a prom what woman would you take to a prom and he's like I'd take a lot of people to a prom you know yeah. <laughs> men and women I'm okay with that please stop asking Oh, that's uh, the worst. I hate uh, that. That's the worst. Yep. That's that's like that David Bowie interview. It's like, well, so are you bisexual? Yeah, I've answered that question. I am. But did you really answer it? Yeah, I did. <laughs> There's this thing where I will happily be in love with anybody. Right. <laughs> if I like them. <laughs> and also, again, you've seen pictures of Kote Ibushi, right? Yes. How he's the internet's number one kissy boy. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's a beautiful man. <laughs> and he can do things like ignore physics if he wants to. <laughs> which would be a turn on for anybody. Yeah. I'm going to send you a picture, which has, it's actually from the NJPW Cup a couple of years ago. Um, hi, hero. <laughs> <laughs> it's Kote Bushi holding a trophy, and it's become my You Did a Good Job, the equivalent of the Great Job horn for me. <laughs> this is your Great Job image. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Hi, I brought you a trophy. <laughs> this is for being Very you nice. and doing a great job. <laughs> See, I just send people the picture of Griffin with his thumbs up going, great, great job. job. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's, let's pull focus back because you got me talking about wrestling. That's a really good way to get me on a tangent. <laughs> All right, Becky, so let's start with the basics. Whereabouts did you grow up? So I am born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. I've lived here basically my whole life. Right after Dave and I got married, we actually moved to Orlando and we lived there for a year. But because I was young and had never lived anywhere else, I got super homesick. We ended up moving back home, <laughs> which in retrospect was probably, you know, like by the time we were leaving, I probably could have stayed there. But by that time, wheels had already been set in motion for us to move back, so we just ended up moving back. But So we had our little adventure in Florida for a year. 
I've heard that Florida is an adventure. Oh yeah, yeah. It was it was not at all what I imagined it to be because I had never been there before we moved there, and I was surprised we lived in Orlando or outside of Orlando. It was not all that different from Missouri. Like I expected it to be a big city, and it was, but like the area that we lived was still a bunch of like country folk type people like I don't know we call them Hoosiers in St. Louis but like you know (laughs) kind of middle class you know working people so it wasn't really that different like I guess culturally it was a little bit different but the area that we lived was the same so but other than that yeah we've been in St. Louis forever. I actually got to visit St. Louis recently a couple of years ago for my friend Alex's wedding. Alex my friend who proposed to his then girlfriend having an Emo's pizza delivered to her with the words, will you marry me, written on the inside of the lid. Aww. And she said yes. And there is something about, because the thing is, Alex has lived in Australia for a long time, but he's someone who goes back like twice a year back to the States because he has to go back for Thanksgiving. And he'll go back and stay like a month and then come back. So I think there, like when you're saying the minute you left St. Louis, you got homesick. That rings true to me for the only other person from St. Louis that I know. So when we were there, we were staying not far from Washington Avenue. Like I could walk to like Star Clipper. And the thing I want to talk about, which is the St. Louis City Museum. Ooh, fun. Exactly. So (laughs) the only way, like I've tried to describe the St. Louis City Museum to people. So you've been there, so you can help me. So the way I can describe it is it's essentially like a maze or a playground for adults, but also kids. That was actually exactly what I was going to say is it's like a funhouse playground for kids and for adults. There's a little bit there for everybody. Yeah, there's like 10 stories of it. Like when you go in, the bottom floor is all like molded stone in the shape of like dragons and fish and stuff. And every once in a while, you'll pass like a little hole in the wall. And if you're like kid-sized you can go down that hole and find another area and then move on to the next place. But if you're not kid-sized, you just watch someone disappear. Right. (laughs) And there are, like, tubes you can crawl through that, like, go through walls and up into the ceiling, and there's no map. They literally say there is no map because they want you to get lost, and you do. That kind of terrifies me, but, yeah, like, I imagine, because obviously that wasn't around when I was a kid. That's only since I've been an adult. So there are places in there that I have never seen and will never see because I'm not small enough to fit into those holes. There's one part that's like a tree trunk almost. Mm -hmm. And there are branches that go up and branch off into different tunnels. And I went there with my niece when she was a kid. So this probably would have been at least maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And she went up crawling through the things and I didn't want to lose sight of her. So I tried to follow. I didn't get very far until I got to a point where it twisted in such a way that I had to like twist my upper body and my shoulders to try to go up. And then I got stuck and I freaked out. Oh no! And I was like, okay, I just need to figure out how to twist my shoulders back the way they were and get out of this tree and I'll find her eventually. She's going to come out the other end somewhere. Because I'm not getting stuck in this tree. <laughs> that was a bit of a scary moment for me, but I love that place so much. Yeah, and listeners, do yourself a favor. Go to Google and search St. Louis City Museum, and you'll see. Because the entire place is, like, built out of wrought iron and stone and, like, tubing and stuff. To the point where, like, there's an entire plane coming out of, like, the side of one of the upper stories. And you can walk down that plane and, like, out onto a catwalk and around to this other thing. And there's, like, a giant, there's, like, giant structures on, on the roof. There's like a, a Ferris wheel and like a mini roller coaster and like a, a giant praying mantis, which is really off-putting if you're just walking by and you're like, what the hell is that? 
That's the best. I love the praying mantis. Yeah. And there's like on the 10th story, there is like a slide that goes all the way down to the ground floor. You have to go up all these different staircases to get up to the top. And I think there are points on different floors where if you want to get on the slide from that point, you can go down. Yeah. If you you run out of steam, you can go to one of the lower ones. Right. And then there's also on the roof on the corner, there's a school bus sticking out at, I guess, a 45 degree angle off the roof of the building that you can actually go out into the school bus. So where you're, there's nothing beneath you and you're just hanging out in the middle of the air. There's also a floor, I think it's like the second or third floor, where it's just like a ballroom where you might have like a Christmas party or something. Mm-hmm. And in the side of that ballroom, there's a bank vault that's bigger than me. Like something yes. that you would see the Joker robbing in Batman. And you go in there and it's like a house of mirrors and they're playing like Russian opera and you can like step in and it's really trippy and weird. And the thing is, it's open till midnight. Like we went during the day and mm-hmm. then later at like 11.30, I couldn't sleep because of jet lag. So I went back with my cameras and the same bracelet got me in. And so mm-hmm. I just wondered when it was nearly empty and it was, oh, and there, like, we didn't even mention the robot bar. There's a bar <laughs> full of robots. And like, yeah, there's a, like there's Mr. Like a Science bar. Theater, like nailed together robots. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so weird. And things, all the lights are on. And all the music is still playing, but then there's no one there. Right. And it's, it's this real kind of like mixed up files of Basil Frankenweiler kind of feeling of being like, I'm locked in the museum after hours. Lucas, I love that book. You have no idea. I read that book a million times when I was a kid. Oh, my God. <laughs> Did you actually fantasize about being the kid yes. left behind the museum? <laughs> yes. I'm going to go hide in the bathroom until the security guards leave. And then I'm going to live in the museum at night. And I'm going to steal coins out of the fountain. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I love that book. I think after that book came out, the life of a museum security guard became so much more fraught with danger. <laughs> because I'm sure you and I and every other kid had that same idea. And the, the security guard's like, this used to be such a cushy job. Now I got to look for kids all the time. Now I'm just like rumbling kids all the time. And it's like, look, <laughs> I read that book too. It's a good book. Go home. Oh, I love it so much. But for me, it was not museums. I would always fantasize about hiding in the library until everybody left and being able to sit in the library all night and read books by myself. In reality, I would probably be way too scared to actually do that because I'm a chicken and I would not want to be in a dark library by myself. But the fantasy was nice. (laughs) Yeah, I used to have that with, with shopping malls or like big stores like a Walmart or something. And this was way before the movie Where the Heart Is came out. So this idea of going around and being able to like just be unrestrained from what I could look at or what I could do was, yeah, something that very much appealed to me. Like, I could take my time. I could, you know, jump into those big metal cages they have full of the bouncy balls and just, like, <laughs> see if it was like a ball pit, you know? <laughs> yeah. Going back to the city museum, like, my actual favorite part of that, which I'm sure is probably not that many people's favorite part is, and I can't remember what floor it is. I want to say it's the fifth floor, but they have an architectural museum that's literally just a whole section that's different, like, cornices and architectural pieces off the outside of buildings that they've oh, yes, saved. Yes. And they have either displayed up on the wall or, you know, have recreated like the mantelpiece over the top of a doorway. And they have a lot of Louis Sullivan stuff there, just like wrought iron gates and like all these pieces of architecture that they have saved and they're displaying in there. I love that. I could sit in there all day and look at that stuff. Yeah, that's where the giant hot dog is, right? 
I don't know if I've seen the giant hot dog. There is like a big metal statue of like a hot dog with arms and legs. It's right in the middle of a room. And I remember like taking it. They wouldn't let us in to see it because it was, I think, part of another exhibit. So I remember like leaning through the bars to take a picture of this massive hot dog. (laughs) See, you're mentioning architectural stuff. And what do I remember? The big fucking hot dog. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in my defense, I don't think the big hot dog was there the last time I was there. I haven't been in a little bit. Uh, But they were only just starting to put together the architectural stuff the last time that I was there. But I know they've gotten a lot more pieces in since the last time I was there because I follow their Twitter so that I can see all the new architectural stuff that they've put up because i'm trying to get my friend shannon from chicago to come down and visit so that i can take her because she loves frosty plum on twitter shannon 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 i'm telling you go to the museum (laughs) for real she needs to she needs to come down and visit me so i can take her to all the cool museums and places no pressure (laughs) no pressure except for all the pressure calling you out on this podcast but no pressure put you on blast i think i have a picture of the hot dog all right that's not gonna load for me okay well Picture, if you will, a giant Picture, if you will, a giant dog. (laughs) All right. Well, we talked a little bit about it, but what sort of kid were you? I was, I guess, a tomboy. I mean, I've never really been athletic, but I've also never been a girly girl either. So I guess that puts me squarely in tomboy territory. I was a book nerd. I would read constantly. I would get in trouble in school for reading because I would bring books with me because we had a library. I feel like I'm saying library. Library. Uh, (laughs) One block away. So I would always ride my bike to the library and rent, get a lot of books and bring them to school with me and have them open under the lip of my desk so that it looked like I was looking down at my school book, but I was actually looking (laughs) down below the desk and reading a book. And you wouldn't think that teachers would be mad about someone who wanted to read but it turns out if you're not reading what they want you to read, they do get mad a lot. <laughs> so I would get yelled at a lot for reading in class what I wasn't supposed to be reading. But I pulled a pretty successful con on my seventh grade teacher because I had moved in the middle of the year. And so it turned out and got to the math book and I was like, oh, we already did this in my other <laughs> school, which was partially true. We had started that chapter because it was the same province, so it was the same book. Mm-hmm. And we had started like maybe a week before. And, they, and he went, okay, well, you can just do other work if you want to, which to me meant, yeah, I'm going to sneak it like a Michael Moorcock fantasy novel and like read it for the rest of this semester. <laughs> and then got to the test and realized I was incredibly behind. <laughs> Whoops. So I was cursed by my own hubris. Oh, wait a minute. We have hot dog photo. I am going to drop this in to the chat. It's thinking. <laughs> Rendering hot dog. <laughs> Indexing matrices. Bun viscosity check. <laughs> oh man, he's going to think for a while. Okay, keep talking. <laughs> At one point you will see it and it will be glorious. So apart from the mixed up files of Bezos, Franklin, Wyatt, which I never remember the entire title. I always start and then I get like halfway through and I go, uh, dude, I'm going to skip to the end. Yeah. <laughs> so apart from that, what sort of things were getting your attention? Let's see. When I was a kid, I would read like the Ramona books. I read those a lot. And then I read like Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley High kind of a little bit. You know, all those preteen girl books that preteen girls read or read back in the day. Until I guess I, God, I don't even remember how old I was. But at some point I started reading like Stephen King and Dean Koontz and because I realized I could just look up whatever I wanted to read at the library and they wouldn't stop me from checking it out like they didn't care so (laughs) you can't stop me man yeah I can look up whatever I want exactly so then I would just absorb every Stephen King and Dean Koontz book I could get my hands on 
that was about it from there. <laughs> I can remember the first time I got a Stephen King book. And up until that point, I think I had, like, bugged my Aunt Sue, who had them all. And I was, like, getting her to tell me the details to see if it was going to be too scary. And yeah. I'd be like, what about this one? You know, tell me about Needful Things. What's that about? Or tell me about this. Because I had had the concept of it explained to me because I saw a videotape case on the shelf of a friend's rec room at a slumber party. And I'm like, what's that? And he explained what it was, and I was too terrified to sleep that night. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> Not even having read it, like, seeing the Tim Curry tie-in cover and went, nope, that is too much for me. So then uh, when I was, like, like testing my Aunt Sue, I would be like, so what about this one? What about that one? Oh, that one sounds clever. Or that one's... And I'm like, what about the stand? Oh, that's about a flute. That's boring. How is that scary? <laughs> and then finally, like, psyched myself up to rent... Or I did the same thing you did, to borrow Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which was a short story compilation. Because in my head, I'm like, if it's short stories, I can, like, duck out anytime I find it too scary. Right. And then reading the forward and then flipping back and forth from the forward to the actual story and going, okay, I'm giving myself one level of remove from this so it's not too scary. That hot dog definitely was not there when I was at the museum. <laughs> oh, it's come through. Oh, good. It has. We have hot dog. Wow, See? that's not at all what I was picturing. I was picturing like an Oscar Mayer Wienermobile, but standing up. That is something else entirely. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you see why it's stuck in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I can see why that would leave an impression. <laughs> so what was your first Stephen King book? Okay, let's see. I was trying to think about it. I honestly think when I was a kid, I really liked Corey Haim. And Corey Feldman, all those movies, Lost Boys. Of course you did. You have two eyes and a heart, right? Exactly. <laughs> and I'm of the appropriate age that those were the people that I liked at that time. I want to say that I saw the movie Silver Bullet, which had Corey Haim in it, and <gasps> yes. then found out that it was a Stephen King book and that there was an illustrated version. That I, and I want to say that was Bernie Wrightson did Silver Bullet or Cycle of the Werewolf is what yes. it's called, the book version. And so I checked that out from the library, reread it a million times because I loved the artwork and I loved the story and I loved the movie, obviously. I want to say I think that that was my first Stephen King book. I also was really into the short story compilations. I got into those before I got into the novels of Skeleton Crew and Night Shift. I've read dozens of times. I, I think Skeleton Crew is probably one of his books that I've read the most where I would just check it out over and over and over again. And reread it, even though I'd read it a million times. I recently read I, Night Shift on a whim. It was because I was looking up something about Salem's Lot. And I was trying to remember one of the details of how it changed from the movie. And they were like, oh, there's a sequel story in Night Shift. And I went, you know, I don't think I've read that. And so I went and looked, and it was like nine bucks on Kindle. And I blew through that book in two days. Like, yeah. it is such a page turner. And it's like a really, like, visceral joy to reading, like, a scary page turner before bed. Yeah, definitely. Salem's Lot is actually Dave's favorite Stephen King book. He oh, was really? just asking me the other day what my favorite is. Honestly, I have to say, and I don't know why, I think my favorite Stephen King book is Eyes of the Dragon, which is nobody's oh. favorite Stephen King book. Because nobody ever thinks of it, because it's not a stereotypical Stephen King book. It's about a guy locked in a tower yeah. who has to pull threads out of napkins to weave a rope to escape from the tower. <laughs> it's not a Stephen King book, yeah. but <laughs> for whatever reason. Because there's a tiny working loom in the dollhouse. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, for whatever reason, I think that might be my favorite, and I don't know why. I was just really really uh taken with that story when i was a kid but i really like the short story compilations i gotta be real i don't know 
if Stephen King can write full-length novels anymore. <laughs> the last few that I've tried, it's like he starts out with a really good premise, and he does a good 100, 150 pages, and then the middle of every single book just drops off and then if he gets to a decent conclusion i don't know because i usually give up but his short stories are still excellent like um oh god full dark no stars yes full dark no stars and there's another one that he came out with that had a similar title to that and i can't remember but those stories are good and they are dark and they're oh yeah full dark no stars was incredibly dark like grim yeah like it's it was rough to read but those stories are so good to the point where they're making like netflix movies out of every single one of them but yeah like i think he can do a short story because he can have a premise he can get in and get out and that's it he doesn't have to fill two three hundred pages in the middle with nonsense that doesn't have anything to do with the story sorry to put you on blast stephen king nah stephen king can deal with it he's got enough money to wipe away his tears because no here's the thing that's true i loved it when i was 14 like that was one of my favorite and most affecting books i still like give sewer drains a wide berth when I have to walk past them. But I can tell you, there's a mushy middle on that book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't need to be a thousand page doorstopper. Yeah, no, I mean, it has other problems too. Oh, yes. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, doesn't maybe necessarily hold up now, but I, I was still terrified of it when I was a kid. Like I read that when I think I was probably, would have been about 13 because it was when we moved from the city to the county. So that would be about the time. And I was all of a sudden terrified that there was something under my bed, you know, couldn't sleep at night. It didn't stop me from reading it, but... Yeah, it was always the voice from the sewer drain, and there's that one bit where I think it's Beverly's in the bathroom, and, like, a bubble of blood comes from the drain, and then mm-hmm. bursts and gets mess everywhere. And it's one yeah. thing that it's scary while it's happening, but then for her to have to, like, frantically try and clean it up before anyone sees, like... Right. As a... I was a pretty fastidious kid. Like, I hate having stuff on my hands or, like, making a mess. To hear that and go, okay, there's now this massive mess in the bathroom and this scary thing happened, but you can't tell anyone and your parents are coming in and you have to clean it up. Like, that, like, even describing it now is, like, setting my teeth on edge. Like, that's a very right, right. kind of, like, deep in the core of me fear. That's the nightmare scenario. Yeah. I mean, he's able to conjure things like that that are so visceral for people on levels that you may hit for somebody, but that for other people, it's like, oh, that's not scary. But I don't know. I'm just, I'm rambling now. (laughs) No, you're good. I'm going to see if I can find the quote. Hang on. Oh, here you go. Yeah. It's like, it's something about that kind of dream logic stuff where it doesn't have to make sense. It's still scary and still effective. Because I'm going to read this quote from, there's a Terry Pratchett book called Hogfather, which has a very psychopathic bad guy who is indiscriminate in how he kills. He's about to kill someone, and the guy says, who are you? And he's like, I'm your worst nightmare. And the guy goes, wait, you mean the one with the giant cabbage and the sort of worry knife thing? <laughs> Sorry? Oh, you're the one where I'm falling? It's only instead of the ground underneath? It's all, he's like, no, I'm fine. Oh, not the one where there's kind of, you know, mud, and then everything goes blue. And he's like, no. Oh, shit, are you the <laughs> one where there's this door, only there's no floor beyond it, and then there's these claws? He's like, no, not that one. He's like, I'm the one where this man comes out of nowhere and kills his stone dead. And the guy goes, Oh, that's not so... And then he kills him. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stuff fascinates me so much. You have no idea. Because uh, this is another tangent. Please, Dave please. Dave and I just rewatched all of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Oh, yes. Because we bought the box set to watch all of them. Because, of course, he loves horror movies. And I was indifferent to them for most of my life. They scared the crap out of me when I was a kid, so I didn't really watch them. But for whatever reason, my friend group, when we were like 10, 11, 12, and had slumber parties all the time, when you're the age when girls do that, everyone else was obsessed with Nightmare on Elm Street movies because it was that time period. And so everybody wanted to rent a Nightmare on Elm Street movie and watch it on the weekends. 
And that stuff just scared the hell out of me anyway. But rewatching them as an adult, it amazed me that out of all of those movies, at least as far as we've watched so far, only one of them, and now I'm not going to remember which one, maybe it was four or five, I can't remember which one now, actually dealt with the fact that dream logic doesn't make any sense. And so when they were doing the scenes where Freddy shows up because somebody's asleep, they would have scenes where a thing is happening and then just all of a sudden the camera angle switches and a completely different thing that had a non sequitur to what was just happening is now going on and nobody addresses it because it's a dream and stuff like that happens in dreams all the time and you're in a house but it's not really your house but it's supposed to be your house and you don't question it because you're like this is my house like that kind of stuff in dream logic and I was like you know if they're gonna remake Nightmare on Elm Street as a new movie that's the kind of stuff that's the story I would want to see is where the dreams are actually nonsense because that's what dreams are they're not supposed to make any sense they never do and <laughs> it's like, how did they manage to make all this movie, these movies about a killer in dreams, but yet everything in it is just linear and makes sense and, uh, uh, I yeah. don't know. <laughs> no, no, it makes complete sense. And I was about to say something and I realized I'm going to be quoting our mutual friend, Brian Brushwood. When you talk about something like Inception, they did their best to make the real world have some very dreamlike scenes. Like the bit where he goes to try and hide in a coffee shop and like he wants to go in and order coffee and the guy keeps yelling at him to leave. And he's like, no, no, I just want to get coffee. And he goes, no, no, you have to leave right now. You're not allowed. He's like, but I can sit down. No, you can't. <laughs> and, and so he won't hide him. Or he goes to run between buildings and the alley gets narrower and narrower until he's stuck like chest to back between two walls. Right. And like these are scenes that are happening in the ostensible real world. But those are dream nightmare sequences. Like, oh, I'm trying to get away, but suddenly it's too thin and I can't and I'm pinned and people are coming for me and I can't get through. Or I'm trying to sit down and this guy is mad at me and I don't know why and I can't understand what anyone's saying. You describe that to people and that's, those are dream scenarios. Exactly. Like, I always have the thing that frustrates me to no end where in my dream I have to call someone and I pick up the phone and even though I know the phone number that I have to dial and I'm watching my finger go to push the buttons... It's pushing all the wrong numbers and I have to keep hanging up and trying again because my brain cannot correspond the number I want to push with the actual button that's on the phone and it dials it wrong. Like just last night I had a dream where I was trying to text Justin Robert Young and tell him that I was going into a secret screening of Deadpool 2 <gasps> and I couldn't get the words to text into my phone. Like I was saying, hey, Justin, they're going to show Deadpool 2. Come over here and see if you can get in. And it was coming out as gobbledygook and gibberish. And I was like, OK, I'll use the talk to text button, which was missing from the keyboard on the <laughs> frigging phone. And they were like, well, why don't you just narrate it? Just talk. I'm like, because there's no microphone button on here. Look, I've got emoticons and all this other junk and I can't do it. And it's so frustrating because it's like I can't narratively can't do like the thing that would make sense because my brain won't let me. It won't let me do this simple thing. Dreams, man. I'll tell you what. <laughs> The minute you said that, I went rocketing back to, I think it's a Justice League episode, where everyone's trapped in nightmares, and Batman figures it out because he goes to his library in his house and opens a book, and it's just junk. And he specifically says, you can't read in a dream, because the right. part of your brain that does the dreaming is not the part that parses the visual language. So he's like, that was his clue. And he's like, right, I realize I'm in a nightmare. Right, now I know it's not real, and I can do stuff. So the minute you said... I can't because I'm texting and it's coming up as gibberish. I'm like, see, if you were Batman, you'd, be, you'd know what was happening. <laughs> if only I was Batman. See, that's the solution. Just be Batman. That's <laughs> always the solution. <laughs> I get that too, where I'm trying to read a page in a dream 
and it says one thing and I look away and I look back and it says something else and it's the same page. It hasn't changed, but my brain has decided that there are other words there now. And it's like, okay, well, that didn't help me at all. <laughs> yeah. And it's something I've tried to describe to people a lot. It's like, I used to have very vivid dreams when I was younger. Thank you, Hira. <laughs> and I would like half wake up and then fall back to sleep and try and go back into the dream, like just like again, half consciously being like, all right, so where was I? I was here. And then it would like, what I now know is clearly my memory replaying the last bits of the dream and only having like a couple of minutes of it and just being like, no, it wasn't this. It was kind of like, and then trying to change it and make it fit what I remembered the dream to be. And then finally I would just wake up and just be like, forget, I can't, I can't do this. (laughs) Yeah, I do that too. The dreams that you want to go back into where you wake up and you don't want to be awake and you want to go back into the dream, you're never going back into that. Your brain won't let you. The nightmares that you don't want to go back into, oh, you're going to fall right back in where you left off as soon as you fall asleep. And then there's the the single most dangerous kind of dream, which is where you imagine that you've woken up and you've oh God. walked into the kitchen and you said, oh, I'll go to the bathroom. And just before you go to the bathroom, you have to like kick yourself in the head and go, no, you're still in bed. Don't go to the bathroom. I promise. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Those are the kind of dreams that I have on like on the weekend when Dave is at work and I sit on the couch and just doze off and fall asleep. And then the entire time that I'm asleep, I'm also still kind of half awake. And so I'm trying to convince myself to move and get up off the couch and go do something. But I feel like I'm in quicksand and I just can't move. And even if I do manage to get up, I can't walk down the hallway. And then I realize that it's because I'm still on the couch and I'm still asleep. (laughs) And it's like two, three hours of that half awake, half. Oh, nope, do not want. And I wake up feeling like I got run over by a steamroller. (laughs) I'm not a good napper. I can't nap. No, from the sounds of it. No, maybe for (laughs) for like your sake and everyone else's sake, you should just like remove naps from your timetable. Yeah, I mean, I don't ever intend to do it. And when I do it, it's just bad. I wake up feeling like death. So I yeah, I don't advise naps for me anyway. Yeah, I think long afternoon naps are up there with the concept of staying up all night for things that in theory work, but never work in practice. Yeah, no. Like any any time, like even going back to being like a teenager or being like a university student where you're like, we'll just stay up all night. You always get to like 4.30 and your body just goes, no, what are you doing? You idiot. I always called that hitting the wall. Yep. Yeah. You, you hit, hit the, the wall. wall at about 3.34 a.m. You feel like you're Ugh. seeing the world from the upside down, you know? Yeah. And you're just oh, like, yeah. uh, when I was at university, I would do 9 o'clock till 3 a.m. as a shift. Then like walk home feeling like I'm on the other side of the world from where I should be. Because no, oh, yeah. nothing's open. I'm awake. I've gotten my second win and nothing is quite right. It's like, where is everybody? Everybody should be awake. I'm awake. Oh, I've just been handed a baby. <laughs> oh, hello. Hi, hero. Don't grab the mic. No, don't grab the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> my turn to be on the podcast now. All right. Well, I suppose that is a signal. We should probably start wrapping it up. Okay. All right. <laughs> I have so many more dreams to tell you about. I them. know. And things we got on a really good tangent and I'm proud of us. Yay. Here I was worried I wouldn't have anything to talk about. All right, Becky. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? Well, I'm at Giggle Loop, which is spelled how it sounds. All lowercase, no spaces. It's a clutch coupling reference, and I appreciate that. It is. It is. <laughs> I'm always happy when someone recognizes it because I feel like there aren't as many. I mean, maybe there are, but I feel like there aren't as many coupling fans out there as there probably should be. It's a good show. Watch Coupling UK, not the US. Yeah, don't do UK. that. <laughs> no. Why would anyone do that? No. No, I'm Gigaloop pretty much everywhere. Twitter, 
Instagram, I guess. I don't really use Instagram that much. I don't, I'm not, I don't use the internet like other people do, I guess. <laughs> Recently, I've started doing a little bit more on my husband Dave's YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash box office maniacs. He does movie reviews on there and action figure reviews and all kinds of good things. Here recently, I did an unboxing for the Japanese imported version of the super mario odyssey soundtrack the complete soundtrack because i ordered it from amazon jp cool because i wanted it (laughs) dang it and it's really cool so i did an unboxing for that you can find that there we're going to be doing some stuff this summer with a secret project that we haven't told anybody about yet because we're hoping well not hoping well we haven't made any plans yet but we're planning on going to dragon con in september august this year because we haven't been for a couple years we haven't been since justin and ashley's wedding actually which was 2015 Uh so it's been a little bit so yeah we're planning a project for dragon con that you'll be able to find out about on that youtube channel should you be so inclined but you know come say hi yeah becky's quality (laughs) follow becky's very enthusiastic about lots of things so if you're a fan of wrestling or the adventure zone or podcasts in general go talk to becky about the totally rad show that'll be fun yeah, come talk to me about TRS. Come talk to me about all things McElroy. I'm a premium follow. Damn right. Also, I'm going to bug you to bug Justin to come on this show. <laughs> Justin Robert Young? Oh, J-R-Y, yes. In fact, that is Jury? Me. Yes. Jerbs? <laughs> the Jerbs. I would be happy to bug him. Excellent. All right, Becky, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. Thank you. I've enjoyed it greatly. Crush a bit, little bit, roll it up, take a hit, fill it. Thank you very much to Becky Graves for her time. When I asked Becky for what her favorite flavors were when it came to cocktails, she said, As for drinks, I'm not a drinker really. When I do drink, it's fruity sweet drinks, the dangerous kind where you can't taste the alcohol, and then you go to stand up and your head spins and you're like, mistakes were made. I like a strawberry daiquiri. My go-to if I would go to a bar is an amaretto sour, something fruity and refreshing along those lines. Don't worry about it, Bex, I got you covered. Hell, I'm not sure if you know about it, but there's a whole school of drinks that specializes in mistakes were made, and we call that the Tiki Bar School of Things. And so I present the Dreamscape. In a shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of dark rum, a quarter ounce of apricot brandy, a quarter ounce of Grand Marnier, an eighth of an ounce of coconut syrup, two ounces of orange juice, and half an ounce of lime juice. Shake vigorously and strain over fresh ice in an old-fashioned glass. Drift away, drink up, and fade out. Enjoy.
The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or, you could really impress me and pledge as much as you want. I won't tell anyone, it'll be our little secret. Patrons get bonus cocktail recipes, cursive tweets, and I would really, just really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps with discoverability so new people can find the show, and especially do so if you're in Australia, because one guy left a one-star rating, and it's been skewing all my results ever since and making me feel bad. And tell you what, if you write a review, I'll even read it out on the show. Won't that be nice? If you'd like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used on the show, going all the way back to episode one. I recently checked. That's 16 hours of music. Including this song. It's Dreams by the Cranberries, R.I.P. Dolores. I update the playlist every week when the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get that new music in your ears. Next week, I'll be talking to Teeny Howard, author of such comic books as Assassinistas and Hackslash Resurrection. And get out your black nail polish and eyeliner, everyone. We're going to be talking about The Crow. Join me, won't you? Yeah, definitely. Pick it's, that up. Let's get that back up in the charts. Oh, you can hear it. Just go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you ever noticed that, oh, I suppose you're a Windows user, but on a Mac, if you ask it to open, like, 30 pictures, it'll be like, okay, boss, I'm going to open 12, and I'm going to open 18. No. <laughs> Just open 30, please. All right, all right, ask me again. Open 30. And then it opens 30. Like, okay, good job. You tried. Dave has a Mac and I fight with it nonstop. I can't ever get it to do anything that I want. It's very frustrating. It's great until it isn't. And when it isn't, it's baffling. It's just like, I don't know how to tell this to do anything. I don't know how to install anything or uninstall anything. I just want my PC back. <laughs> See, I've, I've had to go back to using a Windows 10 PC for work. And it's like... I know why this isn't working. I still can't do anything about it, but at least I know why it isn't working. Right, exactly. 